Hebrews chapter 7. We've seen some tremendous things so far in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews 7, we've been really kind of focusing our attention primarily on how Christ and his priestly office supersedes the Levitical priesthood. Remember, Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, which was never given any priestly responsibilities in the Mosaic law. So how is it that Jesus can be a priest while being from the kingly line of Judah? That's the question that's in the mind of the audience. Well, we are provided with the example of the king priest of old, Melchizedek, who was the one who would bless the blesser Abraham, establishing a superiority over the line of Levi because he gave blessings to him before he was even born. We see that in Hebrews 7, 1 to 10. We saw the Levitical priesthood ultimately was inefficient. Verse 11 of chapter 7, it was temporary. Verses 12 to 14, it was anticipatory. Verses 15 to 19. And most fundamental in the middle of that, we saw that Aaron was made a priest by the law of physical requirement, but Christ after the power of an indestructible life in verse 16. Last week you saw that Aaron's tribe, the tribe of Levi, was unable to bring the sinner close to God, into the presence of God. And so Christ has a superior priesthood based on the fact of verses 20 to 22 that God swore an oath to him that he would be a surety of a better covenant. And as you recall, these wonderful promises given to us in Hebrews 7, we see it's for the reason, though, that it would settle the assurance of the believer in the person of Christ. That's the whole point of this. Look, we may have very little certainty about the course of future events in our own nation, in our own lives, in our own jobs, in our own physical health. Yet here this morning we find something absolutely wonderful. We have a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls, We stand on a rock which will hold up in all of life's storms. We are members of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We have a priest who continues forever. And it is him that we will consider this morning. So this morning, yet again, we will see more contrasts of Jesus' priesthood with those of the tribe of Levi. And I'll organize our thoughts regarding that contrast with three truths. Jesus' undying person his permanent solution, and finally his ceaseless intercession. So that'll be kind of our three-point outline, the undying person, permanent solution, ceaseless intercession. Let me read our text for us this morning. Hebrews 7, 23 to 25. The former priests, on the one hand, existing in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing, but Jesus, on the other hand, Because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So let's consider this first contrast, Jesus's undying person. Comparing the old priesthood with the new, we see at the beginning of our text that there have been many You can underscore that many priests in the old system because their deaths stopped them from continuing on in that office. There were lots of priests under the old system. And we also saw throughout the weeks that there are a lot of qualifications to be an Old Testament priest. 
They can be disqualified on moral grounds. They can be disqualified on spiritual decline. They can become unfit by increasing age, which prohibited them from fulfilling their function. There could be freak accidents where they could get maimed or mutilated or what have you, and that could lead to a disqualification. All sorts of things held their priesthood in jeopardy. Josephus suggests that there were 83 high priests from the time of Aaron to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Now, we don't know how accurate Josephus was, but let's say he's in the ballpark. We see that some served for lifetimes without incident or scandal. Some served for very short times because of moral compromise. So their life is cut short by God. And that's to say nothing of the multitudes, the multitudes of hosts of lower level priests that served under that high priest and each and every single one of them shared the same epitaph, memento mori, and there is death. They all end their journey the same. And he died. And he died is written on the tombstone of every high priest of Israel. Sooner or later, they are going to die. Now you can turn with me to Numbers 20. Keep your hand here in Hebrews 7. We'll be back very shortly. Numbers 20. I'll read from 23 to 29. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron at Mount Hor by the border of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron will be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given to the sons of Israel, because you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. Take Aaron and his son Eleazar, and bring them up to Mount Hor, and strip Aaron of his garments, and put them on his son Eleazar. So Aaron will be gathered to his people, and he will die there. So Moses did just as the Lord commanded, and they went up to Mount Hor in the sight of the congregation. And after Moses had stripped Aaron of all of his garments and put them on his son Eleazar, Aaron died there on the mountaintop. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. When all the congregation saw that Aaron had died, all the house of Israel wept for Aaron for 30 days. This is a great illustration that the people would never forget the only high priest in the history of the nation of Israel up to this point in their entire history was gone. And the point is this. The former has died. Someone has to take their place. To keep the priesthood functioning, there always had to be a qualified high priest on call, if you will. Someone to pick up the mantle in case the former priest should pass away. You know, they couldn't just procrastinate or have a long transfer of power. One dies, someone must immediately take their place. In Joshua 24, 33, we read, when Eleazar died, his son Phinehas took his place. And next, the great-grandson of Aaron, Abishua, takes his place, Ezra 7, 5. And the succession goes on and on and on. One dies, another one has to take his place. You see, a successor was always waiting in the wings, like a minute man ready to go at moment's notice. Was there a problem with this? Well, each and every time that the death of a high priest occurred, it'd throw the people of God into national turmoil. We kind of saw that in numbers. They wept for 30 days. 
Imagine the Israelites after a high priest died. Some of them spanned generations. Imagine being 60 years old and this man had been your only lifeline, your only connection, your only vocal representative to God. And you know what? You don't even know if you're right with God if that man isn't around to demonstrate this to you through the yearly sacrifices on the Day of Atonement to know you are right with God. It's very personal. Imagine going to a priest like that, sharing your hardships, your trials, your sins. On countless occasions, you went to him and you shared your biggest disappointments and your triumphs in life the birth or the death of a child, the rise and fall of social welfare, the health and sickness of loved ones. And this priest would shoulder those burdens for you. When you had a guilty conscience, he was able to patiently and compassionately supply assurance of reconciliation and comfort. He knows all your secrets. He knows all your hopes. He's a household name, a dear friend in the covenant community. He was there when you came into the world. He was there when you got married. He encourages you. Maybe he was there when you laid your closest loved one into the grave. And then abruptly, he's gone. Today, he is gone. And who will replace him? I mean, even if it's his son who replaces him, he doesn't really replace him. You know what I mean? He doesn't know you that way. He doesn't... Know what you are like, all of it. Your delicate grief, your shameful burdens, your disgraceful secret failures. You don't really trust him like that. And you know what? You'll probably never grow to know him the way you knew his father. He probably doesn't have the tenderness, the compassion-seasoned godliness. He has vitality, yes. He has energy, yes, but it's not the same. My priest is gone. That's how they thought. My priest is gone. That's, that's how they felt. They felt it on a personal level, the break of continuity of the covenant representative. This is a blatant weakness in that system. There have been many priests, our text says. Greater in number, our text says. They can't continue because of death. There were many old covenant priests of necessity because they died. And the fact that there were many priests is part of the argument for the incompleteness, the imperfection, the temporariness of those priests. While you could draw near to God in the ministry of those priests, their ministry was always temporary. They died. And so their service unto God and their priesthood comes to an end. Remember, we've mentioned this before. The day they ascended to high priest, their name was written down in a book. And the day they died, the name and date was written down as well. But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood is forever. This is another proof of the superiority of the priesthood of Christ. And again, it's built on his eternal life, his indestructible life. Death may claim the old covenant priest. But it has nothing on the new covenant head. Hebrews 7, 16. Again, it tells us Jesus has an indestructible life. And that comes into play here as as the outworking of that indestructible life. The vital truth, it is in stark contrast to the old priests. There can be no successor for this permanent, perfect priest. 
We never have to live in fear of a day when his priesthood is given to a lesser man. We never have to live in a day in fear when his priesthood will end and someone else will ascend to the throne or to the represent us in an inferior way. No, we will never live in fear of a day without our beloved high priest, Jesus. Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. You can turn your way back to Hebrews there, verse 24. You can go ahead and stop off at chapter one on our way. Now, when you hear that language, he continues forever. I want to make a point for you. It's been building up to this point in the book of Hebrews. In verse 24, it says he continues forever. And now you might be tempted to just jump to the resurrection and say, well, you know, he continues forever because he resurrected from the dead, right? Eh. It's important for us to grasp something vital here. This is not first about his resurrection from the dead. This is about his being a priest on the basis of that indestructible, eternal life that is of his undying person. Remember that important theme we discussed in verse 16 a few weeks ago regarding Jesus' qualification to priesthood being not just because he was a man. That qualification was based upon the power of an indestructible life. We spoke of Jesus' dual mediation. Do you remember that? This comes up again in our text this morning. Jesus was a mediator according to both natures. Jesus stands between two parties. And again, we see this in our text when it says Jesus lives forever in verse 24. He's appointed to this position of mediator by the power of an indestructible life. This life was not merely the human nature considered apart from the divine. This is the life of the second person of the Godhead, the life of the Son of God, of Christ, God-man. And so his life was endless This illimitable life of Jesus is vital for dual mediation and our security in his undying person as our high priest. For though he died, his person still lived. Both soul and body were inseparably united to the Son of God. Although he was truly and really dead in his human nature, he was still alive in his indissolvable person. And so his intercession can't be interrupted. And that's a major contrast, and I want to show that to you. He's the eternal Son of God, to whom God made a covenant oath before the foundation of the world that he would be a priest forever. He is the Son of God, to whom the Father gave a mission of saving his people. And you need to see this mission included his death. And we need to consider what that means for his intercession as high priest. Hebrews 1, he is the full and final revelation of God. Hebrews 1, 1 to 2, he's the heir of all things, the one through whom all things were created, Hebrews 1, 2. He's the radiance of the glory, the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things, the universe, by the word of his power, Hebrews 1, 3. He is the eternally begotten son of God, Hebrews 1, 5. He's the one to whom the father says, your throne, O God, is established forever and ever, Hebrews 1, 8 and 9. He is the one who laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and who uh, preserves the creation, who lives beyond creation itself, Hebrews 1, 10 to 12. He is the one the Father said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, Hebrews 1, 13, which is the beginning of Psalm 110, the same psalm in which we hear the Father swear that oath that we looked at last time, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. 
see this indestructible life, which is the basis of his priesthood. He is the alpha, the omega, the first, the last. He is before all things. In him, all things hold together. And this one, the eternal son of God, robed himself in frail humanity. He took humanity to himself and he suffered and died for us. This was a priest prepared for death. This was a priest prepared for death. Hebrews 2.9. He tasted death for us. He came to bear the curse of death for us. For the wages of sin is death, and as sinners we owed a death wage. But the Son assumed human nature to pay the debt that we could never pay. Hebrews 2, 14 to 15. Through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. He took humanity to himself to destroy the one who has the power of death through his death. He is the seed of the woman who crushes the serpent's head. He is the one who vanquishes the enemy of sin, Satan, and death. He took humanity to himself so he might save all of Abraham's children. He did so to take the wrath of God upon himself so that we could be absolved of all of our sins. Hebrews 2.17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And this son of God who took humanity to himself who kept God's law for us, who was tempted in every way we are yet without sin and who suffered and died for our sins and rose again on the third day. And at his resurrection, we see is vindicated as holy, innocent, undefiled. He was declared the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. But here's the key. Yes, he died and rose again, but his resurrection is not the basis of his indestructible life and his permanent priesthood. Rather, his indestructible life and permanent priesthood are the basis for his resurrection. Revelation 1, 17 to 18, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, don't be afraid, I'm the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and hell. So think of this eternal priest, his illimitable life, his undying person. Think of how superior this is to the old covenant priests. They could never perfect the church of God. Only he could. The entirety of their ministry was an administration of the grace of this great high priest, just as types and shadows. But he is the sum and the substance of it all. And after making purification of sins, he ascends to the right hand of the majesty on high. He goes to heaven. Those old covenant priests brought people before God's presence in a tabernacle and temple here on earth. But that was just a type of the true tabernacle in heaven. Are you starting to see the contrast here? They died and their intercession with them. They died and their priesthood with them. They died and their mediation with them. But friends, although Christ died, he was not forbidden by death to abide forever in his office like they were. He died as a priest. They died from being priests. 
He died as a priest because he was also to be the sacrifice. But he retains his office. Even though in his human nature he died a real death, he breathed his last. He cried aloud that terrible cry of dereliction and he proclaimed it is finished. And though he breathed his last, his person never died. Through the indissolvableness of his person, his soul and body still subsisting in the person of the Son of God, he was capable of retaining his office. He was a priest prepared for death. His being dead was part of his administration of that great office as priest and sacrifice. So from the very first moment that he was a priest, he was so and always is without any interruption or intermission. That's the key. This is why our text emphatically says, he forever abides. He lives forever. Without interruption, without intermission, the perpetuity of the priesthood of Christ as unchangeably exercised in his own person is a a principal part of the glory of his office that supersedes all other offices, all the Levitical offices. His discharge of this office for the church is in his own person. Now, we've seen the contrast between the dying and the ceasing of the old covenant priests and the undying person of the mediator of the better covenant. Now, let's briefly consider his permanent solution. I know we find ourselves in the thick of a lot of doctrine here in the book of Hebrews. You're probably sitting here week after week wondering, well, when's this practical stuff going to kick in? Well, let's focus briefly here on something. Hebrews 7, 24 to 25. I'll read it again. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forevermore those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Due to the fact that He is indestructible, therefore he is able. The word able there has to do with his adequacy and efficacy to do the task. He is able to do what? To save completely. The the NASB says he is able to save forever. Think about that. It's not merely ability unexercised. It is what he does. He saves So if you have any concerns about the efficacy or extent of the atonement, study this text right here. He saves forever. It's not an on-again, off-again thing. Maybe today, maybe not tomorrow. There's not a shred of uncertainty. There's not provisional hesitancy. No, he saves forever. The New King James says it sweetly. He saves to the uttermost. Listen to me here. You will never have a time in your life. And and you know what? Maybe things are real hard for you right now. Maybe you've hit rock bottom here and now. But check this. There will never be a time when the ability of Jesus to save is expended or reaches its limits. There's no bottom to the wellspring of his grace. You can't reach the end of it. He can't be exhausted. He doesn't get tired. He saves forever without being exhausted in his person in the process. 
It can be taken qualitatively, meaning he can save us completely, thoroughly. There's nothing else that needs to be done or can be done. There's nothing left unfinished by this priest. Listen, this is in stark contrast to the pagan idols of men's imaginations. Christianity does not teach that Jesus has done all he can to save you. Even if there's 99% that he did, there's still something the sinner must do. No, that's a lie from the pit of hell. His priesthood is complete. He doesn't overlook any work that needs to be done. He does it all. His work is a permanent solution. And those two concepts are what we see here in this term, in this context. There's no other way to take it. The salvific work of this priest is such that it is for all time, thoroughly, he does it all by himself. Now, I'm certain in this room right now, there are people who struggle with the question about their assurance of their salvation. They sin, they think, well, they fall into a rut, they wonder, am I a Christian? And maybe that's you. Wondering, am I really a Christian? I mean, I think I I was, but now I'm not so sure. Maybe something rocked you this week. Maybe even this weekend or this morning on your way here. Maybe just lacks assurance. Well, you need to know from this text here this morning, the stature of your high priest is permanent and all of salvation with it. And all of his doing comes from his hands and his alone. So there is no break in the continuity of your communion with God because your priest intercedes whether you realize it or not. You may have ups and downs, but guess what? Your high priest doesn't. He's eternally fixed and immutable as he has ever been and always will be because of his illimitable, indestructible life. He intercedes as a high priest. Those old covenant priests could not save to the uttermost. They could not save completely, forever, anyone who drew near to God through them. No. Their ministry was imperfect. It could never perfect Christ's people. Their ministry was temporary, typological. It was never meant to be a permanent solution, a permanent fulfillment. Jesus is a priest forever. Jesus is the mediator through whom we can draw near to God and who is able to save to the uttermost. What he offered as priest is sufficient. It's enough. It's complete. It's permanent. And you know what? Before the foundation of the world, he wrote our names in stone in the Lamb's book of life, beloved. Hebrews 7, 27 says, Jesus doesn't need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because he died, he did this once for all when he offered up himself. He offered up a sacrifice for our sins once for all time when he offered up himself. There's nothing you can add, nothing you can subtract from his work. Your sins don't make his work less complete. And your good works do not make his work more complete. He is powerful to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. He is able, our text says. He is able, not he is enabled by your faith or he is disabled by your sin. No, 
He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. He is the mediator between God and man. He and he alone is our mediator. He is our surety. He is our savior. Friends, our priest is the possessor of a supernatural divine power which is able to save to the perfection, to the full, to all ends. It saves us from sin, its guilt, its stain, its power. It it saves us from its consequences, the curse and wrath of God and eternal death. What neither ourselves nor others could do for us, he and he alone is able to do. And we see he is willing as much as he is able to set us in a safe, happy, blessed, and glorious state forever. We draw near to the Father in faith and worship through Christ, the only mediator between God and men. What is that telling us? We shouldn't look for another mediator. Please hear this. It's not even mostly him, but a little bit you. It is all of him, all of grace. When you believe in Christ, you don't get some of him. You get all of him. The whole Christ and all his benefits is yours through faith. I want to carry this a bit further. Okay, Jesus saved me, but what about when I struggle, when I stumble, when I sin, when I doubt, when I think, feel, or act wretchedly? Well, our text has some words of tender consolation, doesn't it, Grace Life? He is able to save to the uttermost forever, completely. There's no partial salvation. There is no temporary salvation. There is no incomplete salvation. No, this is the salvation of our eternal priest, our mediator. He has a perpetual, indestructible priesthood and he has given himself to this task. Let's look at our text again. Again, we've seen the contrast between Jesus' priestly qualifications based on his undying person, his permanent solution. Now let's look at the last part here in verse 25. Why? Because he always lives to make intercession for them. Look at his ceaseless intercession here. He wants you to see that your security is based on the permanency of his priesthood and his ceaseless intercession. Remember, the former priests were prevented from continuing in their ministry because they died. You know, preachers die. Preachers die and you can cart them out and you can bury them and you bring another one in and you go on. The priests were like that too. They served the Lord, they got buried, they plopped the next one up and they went on. But Jesus is not like that. His priesthood never comes to an end. It goes on forever. And so your security is based on the permanency of that priesthood's intercession. But most importantly, what it means about his ability to save I mean, just think about this again. So important. Why? Because the problem with sin doesn't end at the beginning of the Christian life, does it? You know, we all rejoice when we finally realize we're sinners. We finally rejoice when we realize God's grace, when we trust on him for salvation as he's offered to us in the gospel, and we feel the the bondage and and the guilt of sin released. We, We feel an enormous pleasure, forgiveness, and acceptance with God, and then we never sin again, right? Not at all. We fight sin every day, and we will until the day we die. 
And so we need a priest who's around for that process. Think about your closest friend, perhaps your husband or wife. They're people you share your life with, right? And when death takes them, it seems like part of you dies with them too, doesn't it? Knowledge of your struggles, your heart, things no one else knows about you goes with them, doesn't it? Well, that's how it would have felt with an old covenant priest. You might have borne your soul to a godly, faithful, biblical priest. And then one day he dies. And all the things you shared with him. And he may have ministered to you in some very significant ways. And all the things you shared with him are in the grave with him. But not so with Jesus. When you bear your soul to Jesus, he is a priest who will always know what you've been through. And he will always be there for you. He is a permanent priest who makes ceaseless intercession. And again, I want to think about this more. You know, even in glory, when you've forgotten, Jesus will remember what you've gone through in this world. He is a priest forever. He is the priest you need. And his priesthood never wears out. It never ends, which means he is right now at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you. He has never stumbled in his priestly duty, never in his desire to make intercession for you either. Even as he approaches his death on the cross, you see him in John 17 praying to the Father on behalf of the apostles and on behalf of all those who would ever believe through the preaching of the gospel through them. So what is he doing in John 17? He is making intercession even for us there. He never fails. He's always advocating for you at the right hand of the Father. 1 John 2.1 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is our mediator, our intercessor, our advocate. What more do you need? Hebrews is written to a church that's tempted to return to the old covenant types and shadows. They want to rest in that outwardly glorious worship, in those tangible sacrifices that they could smell and see, in those priests that they saw day in and day out and they could talk to. And Hebrews is telling us none of that could save you. None of those priests could ever perfect you. They were all temporary and typological. You have the substance. You have the fulfillment. You have the eternal priest, the Christ, the Son of God, the mediator, the atoning sacrifice, the advocate, the intercessor. Don't turn your back for lesser things. Now we come to that point where we kind of have to ask ourselves some difficult questions. What other things do you look to rather than trusting in Christ and his work for you? You're probably quick to point to those papists in Rome, right? Who look to the Pope or the priests or the Mass or Mary or saints or angels or whatever. And it's easy to kind of turn your nose at the silliness and, and criticize the insanity of that system. But friends, you have to look at yourself. What do you look to? Do you trust the power of your own sincerity? Do you trust the merit of your own obedience? Do you think your approach to God is uh, mediated by how, how well you surrender or how deeply you feel about the depths of your faith and your sin? Do you think Christ's work is improved by the quality of your repentant personal holiness? None of this completes the work of Christ. Christ's work is complete. None of this makes permanent the work of Christ 
Christ's work is permanent. Christ's love and grace towards you far surpasses anything that you could ever grasp. John Owen said it well. He said, there is more love, pity, and compassion in Christ Jesus towards every poor sinner that comes unto God by him than all the saints in heaven are able to comprehend. I know many of you struggle to believe that in reality, this is all of grace. You may be burdened by a sense of guilt and shame that you're never quite able to shake from your back. Well, John Bunyan understood that too, didn't he? He struggled to believe Jesus is sufficient for him. And he wrote about it in his spiritual biography, Grace Abounding. He said this, One day as I was passing into a field, this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And with the eyes of my soul, I saw Jesus at the right hand. There, I said, is my righteousness. So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say to me, where is your righteousness? For it was always right there before him. I saw that it is not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness is Christ. Now my chains fell off indeed. My temptations fled away and I lived sweetly at peace with God. It captures that well. Christ is our great high priest, our mediator, our atoning sacrifice, our advocate and intercessor. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. So he takes that illimitable life and he shows you what it means. He uses it to intercede for you. Do you see that? He always lives. He lives forever to intercede. He'd have to cease living, friends, to fail in his task. And here we are told that he pledges that illimitable life to promote our spiritual interests, our eternal welfare, to meet our needs before the Father. Where he goes, so to speak, he's omnipresent. Wherever he does, whatever he is, he is with his very being. His very essence is concerned with this right now. That should fill you with some confidence, right? To walk through this life. This is the kind of spine-strengthening stuff that has encouraged Christians for generations to weather the storms of life unlike anything else ever could. Knowing we have an anchor in heaven, we have an eternal high priest who intercedes for us in an unbroken, perfect way. Jesus always, always, always lives and he intercedes for us. We understand that we couldn't have been saved without the death of Jesus. I know that you know that. We are never beyond folly as long as we are on this earth. So we're ever in need of this perpetual intercession from our protector in heaven. Spurgeon said it well. How often are we hidden from evil by the prayers of Jesus? We don't know, my brethren, how many poisoned arrows are caught upon the shield of our Lord's intercession. Think of it. Jesus always prayed always prevailing and consequently always showering down upon us blessing beyond all measure the most of which we scarcely recognize and we take for granted and yet if they were without being withheld from us for but a moment we would perish miserably now let me illustrate this point for you 
briefly as we come to a close here. I use this illustration a lot. It's one that it means a lot to me, and I think it's very important. Surrounding the priesthood of Jesus Christ and his sacrificial offering, we see a story of two very different men. You know them well. Recall Judas and Peter. Judas betrayed Christ, and the price was a mere 30 pieces of silver. And what do we see from Judas after the crucifixion, after the betrayal? We see remorse, don't we? We see some regret, don't we? We see he tried to wash himself of responsibility of the heinous crime by returning the money, but to no avail. We see in Scripture that those acts, remorse, regret, recompense, are not equivalent to repentance, right? Repentance is not merely regret doing something bad. We know Judas was a son of perdition from the beginning, no genuine repentance whatsoever. He, had, he, he was an opportunist devil from the start. And then we have the example of Peter. Peter was not a better man. You likely recall his boast. Everyone may forsake you, but I'll die first. I won't do it, right? Matthew 26, 33. But what we quickly learn from Peter after he says those words? Talk is cheap. Even more notorious were his profound denials of Jesus. Judas denied Jesus with a kiss. Peter denied him with cursing. And you'll notice it wasn't even just once. But three times, I don't know the man. So what's the difference? The difference is the priest. Luke twenty-two thirty-one. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. Consider what profound comfort is given to Peter here. When Jesus is raised from the dead, Mark 16, 7, Think about this. The angels tell the women who came to the tomb and saw it empty, they say, go and tell his disciples and Peter. See that? Go tell his disciples. Tell the disciples and especially tell Peter. Who do you think was concerned that Peter got the message? That he instructs the angels to make sure that he knows. It's his compassionate, faithful high priest He gave the angels that specific message. Jesus tells us what he was doing in the garden, offering his high priestly prayer of petition and intercession. Peter had a living high priest. Judas did not. Peter had a guarantor. Judas did not. Peter had a wonderful surety. Judas did not. You may be wondering, well, wait a minute. I thought Jesus was a high priest for everyone. Hebrews 7.25 Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Well, who is it that comes near to God through him? Didn't Judas come to Jesus? I mean, Judas came to Jesus, right? I mean, you bet he did to line his pockets from the works of the disciples and our Lord. He was there, though. He was present. But he wasn't really there, was he? Reminds us of the Hebrew people in Hebrews chapter 6, right? By contrast, when Peter meets Jesus, what does he do? Luke 5, 8. He tells him, depart from me, Lord, because I am a sinful man. See the profound difference? Who can come to Jesus? Who makes the call whether someone is 
a Judas or a Peter? Well, John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Both Judas and Peter were in the group of professing believers, but both didn't have Jesus as their high priest. So you really have to know. You have to be sure that Jesus is your high priest. If you can't answer that question today, at this very moment, is Jesus ever living to make intercession for you? Maybe you're confused. How do I answer that? How do I know if I was drawn by the Father to the Son and come through the Son to the Father? How do I know? The answer is easy. Have you come to the Father through the Son? Is Jesus your Savior from sin and the wrath of a most holy judge? Do you rest all your confidence in Jesus or in something else? I like the words of the Heidelberg Catechism. Question one and two. Let me read them for you. They're a little long, but they're good. What is your only comfort in life and death? Great way to start. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid all my sins with his precious blood. He has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him, Christ. By his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. What do you know to live or what must you know to live and to die in the joy of that comfort? Question two, three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am free from all sin and misery. And third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. Aren't these some profound truths? We see Jesus' undying person. We see the permanent solution. We see his ceaseless intercession. You know, we can't make enough of this, the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're shaking your head saying, well, Peter, didn't you say that this was practical? And for the past three weeks, at least, you've been doing nothing but giving us the theological fine points of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Well, friends, it's the only message I have. Jesus is the beginning, the middle, and the end of all of this. Spurgeon said it this way. Jesus Christ crucified should be the Alpha and Omega of all of our preaching and teaching. Woe to the man who makes anything else the main subject of his ministry. If you have left out Christ, there is no manna from heaven, no water from the rock, no refuge from the storm, no healing for the sick, no life for the dead. If you leave out Christ, you have left the sun out of the day and the moon out of the night. You've left the waters out of the sea flood out of the river. You have left the harvest out of the year, the soul out of the body. You have left joy out of heaven. Yea, you have robbed all of its all. There is no gospel worth thinking of, much less worth proclaiming in Jehovah's name if Jesus be forgotten. We must have Jesus, our unfailing priest. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today. We thank you of the constant reminder of the wonders of this chapter that we take for granted, the current session of our Lord, our high priest, 
who presently makes intercession for us in all of our circumstances, despite all of our sins and all of our shortcomings, Lord, we thank you that he ever lives to make intercession for us. May we find a renewed vigor of comfort and hope. Lord, may this strengthen our backs to carry on with the labor that you have placed before us in the vineyard of the Lord. May we delight in you and may we not compromise in the task. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray, amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from our guest speaker. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Please note, law prohibits the unauthorized copying or distributing of this audio file. Requests for permission to copy or distribute are made in writing to the Grace Life Pulpit. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit, all rights reserved.